Welcome back to a new episode of the 4-Week MBA podcast. In this session, I interview a person that I admire with Federico Fagin. Federico is actually the inventor of the family of microchips that in the 70s at Intel gave the rise at the PC industry as we know it actually today. So Federico is really one of the founding fathers of the modern Silicon Valley as we know it. I already interviewed Federico last year, so you're going to find the whole story. In this particular episode, instead, we touch a few points that are extremely important right now. The reason why I wanted to have Federico again in the podcast is because this is a turning point where really artificial intelligence, as I explained in many of my previous episodes, is a sort of taking over the business world and is showing incredible capabilities. And it seems as we're moving towards something called artificial general intelligence. However, with Federico, we're going to cover a few key things. We're going to start from the experience of Federico in the mid-80s as he actually understood how neural networks worked, as he actually was trying to build a sort of a, sort of a smart computer already back then. Then we're going to trace the difference between human and artificial in intelligence and how those are fundamentally different. And we're going to see how in the theory of uh, really mind that Federico proposes, consciousness is a key building block. We're going to understand why even when we look at the current paradigm of AI and even given the incredible capabilities of AI right now, the AI is still quite limited. It has still a lot of limitations and we need to be careful in terms of unleashing the AI without understanding those things. We will go through and uh, interview and in the interview actually ask a few important questions to Federico and uh, he gives us a few interesting answers. And I also going to emphasize a little bit new paradigm of AI, but also what's the most uh, dangerous right now mindset that there is behind this paradigm. As a business person, as I will explain, I do appreciate and I do value the kind of uh, really revolution that we're going through because right now finally after many years we're looking at an industry that of software which is becoming really smart and dynamic. However on the other side we also need to understand that the AI is going to need to enhance our human capabilities rather than replace us. As Federico will explain the AI without the human input actually might turn into only negative things. So without further ado, let's go to the interview and uh, let's listen to what Federico has to say. Federico, thanks, uh, thanks a lot for joining this uh, conversation. As uh, I was uh, explaining uh, you uh, a little bit, uh, you know, before the call, the reason why I really wanted to have you, it's because uh, I think it's uh, extremely important to uh, to give people a little bit of context about uh, what uh, AI can do, how this connects with the consciousness that you have been one of those people that really have been playing and uh, really, uh, you know. Um, uh, with, with this industry for for years, and uh, in the in the episode about the history of uh, Silicon Valley, where I had you as a, as a, as a guest, actually we explained uh, the the whole story, and how you actually uh, you know worked uh, at the Intel and created the the family of chips that actually created the whole PC industry, and also how uh, after many years you also started to work in, um, in on on uh, neural networks and deep learning. So yeah, just wanted to start a little bit uh, with you, uh, with uh, your experience uh, with uh, with uh, uh, neural networks, and how you stumbled upon them, and how this brought you to what has become your study, your incredible study, and one of the most interesting studies uh, around uh, about uh, consciousness. All right. Well, uh, well, thank you first of all for inviting me. Um, my encounter with neural network uh, started in the mid 80s but about six seven years earlier i started wondering about uh, how the brain that was in those days presented as a essentially an information processor could uh, 
actually do the things that it does. Uh, you know, it seemed to me that computers work with a different principle. And so I study uh, several popular books of, uh, of uh, brains and how the brain works and so on, but still, you know, still done by neuroscientists. And, and, uh, and by reading the account, it was, it became clear to me that uh, uh, the brain cannot work like uh, like a computer. It, it's it it you know it just doesn't have any of the classical forms in which uh, information is processed in a in a computer, and uh, uh, so that interest preceded reading about uh, later on about neural networks. And the fact that neural networks uh, had, with the development of the backpropagation as a form of learning uh, with multiple neural networks, because up to uh, that point, uh, neural networks were only a single layer. Uh, now with, with backpropagation, one could do two or more layers, especially two, uh, two or three layers uh, effectively. and. Uh, there was the appearance that uh, neural network could begin to solve the difficult problems of uh, AI, which are which were pattern recognition uh, of complex patterns, like recognition of faces and writing recognition, uh, recognition of uh, voice, and so on. And so the uh, that interest uh, then led to starting a company together with others at the beginning. Uh, that uh, in which uh, an idea that I came up with was to use uh, analog uh, analog technology, analog uh, transistors, uh, and analog computation in order to uh, make neural networks because the computational power required by a neural network in those days was impossible to achieve with with you know with computers computers were not fast enough uh, but i came up with the idea that if i use a floating gate transistor a transistor that uh, you know like the ones that you use for uh, non volatile memories uh, i could store an analog value that would correspond to say between 3 and 4 bit of uh, of information of, of uh, digital information, and that with the same transistor, then do a multiplication in addition, all is analog. And the uh, organization of the neural network then would not require a CPU in which you would have memory and, and CPU, and it would continuously shuttle data from the memory to the CPU and back to memory, uh, but it would be done directly in the in the analog circuit itself. So with the two transistors, I could have a multiplication, in addition, a storage, non-volatile storage, uh, I mean, uh, of three to four bits, and that would allow to do the computation necessary to do neural networks. And so I started this uh, then I joined forces with uh, with um, um, Professor Carver Mead, who was working on analog. I found out later was working on analog uh, uh, analog electronics for sensory, trying to do sense sensing the way the brain does, the way the human senses do, and uh, and we, you know, we started to develop the technology. So that was the that was the start. Interesting. And what uh, what year was uh, this uh, this research? That was 1986-1987. And for five years, we basically researched on two fronts. One front was see how neural networks could solve practical problems, you know, like and writing recognition uh, of, of you know recognition of objects and so on and so forth. The, the before where essentially impossible to do. In those days, I might uh, say that uh, the experts of artificial intelligence consider neural networks a bad idea 
and and uh, because they were enamored with the with the expert systems and thinking that expert systems would actually be the way to solve those difficult problems. Expert system means that uh, like experts will specify all the features for the AI, right? All the features, for instance. Uh, That's right. Yeah. In other words, the expert would basically spell out the rules that uh, a pattern recon recognizer should use in order to recognize an object. But, you know, we do not know the rules. And in fact, you know, we do not know the rules because we have neural networks, biological neural networks in our brain that do something very similar to what we do with artificial neural networks. So we don't need to know the rules. We, we think, we, sometimes we think that we might know the rules, but we only know high level rules, not the low level rules that are necessary to recognize, say, an apple and distinguish that from, a, from, a, from an orange. So, so uh, in that first part of the, in, in those two aspects that we are studying in those years, one was therefore figuring out how to use neural networks to solve real problems. And we did. We worked, for example, with the with the U.S. Post Service, and we solved the problem of uh, recognizing and writing uh, and, and you know addresses uh, in a, in packages. You know where uh, the problem of even finding where the you know the uh, the address block was written was sometimes more difficult than actually reading the the address itself. And so, you know, so we 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 develop uh, a we, we convince ourselves that you know, natural were the absolute solution for the future. Uh, uh, then, on the other hand, on the on the uh, uh, hardware side, we develop neural networks to the to the point where they could be fielded. However, we, we could never find, and that was my primary job was to find an architecture that was general enough for neural networks that would allow with a few uh, different chips uh, the same way you know that we do that we do uh, computers that is made of building blocks that uh, can be expanded uh, with chips that were analog uh, with a few of them we could develop any kind of neural network uh, it, it turned out that any kind of problem require a custom solution, and a custom solution made with analog chips that are much more difficult to design than digital chips. So, you know, reluctantly, we had to, I had to basically say, no, this, there is no future here. It would take way too long. Um, and, and also, you know, there were not computers that were uh, fast enough to do the training in those days because the training in this idea had to be done offline and then the fielding of the solution would be done with chips that were analog that would be very cost effective and they would do you know a million times the computation that you could do with a computer uh, but we never got there so at that point i decided hey you know before the the venture capital that have invested in that company will you know will will right say now. hey guys you know let's close it down uh, we we need to find a new you know a new solution here. We need to find a problem that we can solve and uh, you know applying the technology, especially the analog technology that we have learned, and uh, and and go to market. And it came up. I came up with the idea of uh, developing a, an alternative to the trackball, which is the in those days was the pointing device used in laptop computers. And, uh, and and so I, I started a small team of uh, four or five of us, the more creative uh, of us, uh, and we would meet once a week or twice a week uh, for a, for a couple couple of months. In a couple of months, we invented the touchpad and the touch screen that eventually changed the way that we interface with our mobile devices. So so you know there was a happy ending. Although the original direction of the company could not be could not be done, and in fact, uh, even today, a technology which is general purpose to making neural networks in such a way that it can be broken up in a few parts, it doesn't exist. It can only be done with software on uh, you know on uh, reasonably programmable units. And so, uh, though th there are 
forays now, but I haven't seen the results yet, forays to do something like what I was doing, what we were doing back in uh, in the late 80s. Um, so that's that's the story. That's story. And how much, how much of uh, the research that you've done then you managed to reuse into the product? Or was it uh, something completely new? Well, no, the, the product was completely new, but but yeah. uh, but, but there were many many of the analog design tricks because because the the actual sensing the sensor, yeah. uh, which the capacitive sensor, it was an analog sensor requiring a very sophisticated analog and digital solution, and the digital solution so it, it basically required initially two chips and then we incorporated all of those all of that into a single chip one chip to control the, an analog, a sophisticated analog sensor uh, that uh, would have to you know, sense the voltage on basically on capacitors that are embedded into the, you know, into the sensor itself, which is a, you know, yeah. a PC, PC board, some, some transparent medium or glass, or, you know, different material, but the sensor is you know there are lines which are etched on uh, on uh, um, on several layers on uh, two or three layers depending if you want to do two dimensional you know one fingers or or multiple fingers so that you have uh, you know that you can detect multiple fingers on the same surface like in in the uh, touch screen and uh, those are etched either on pc boards or in on glass mm -hmm. or plastic for very low cost things Interesting. So not all was uh, wasted, meaning that uh, you managed oh, no, to... No, the... no, no. A, a lot of the, you know, all the, you know, pretty much all of the engineers that we that, that we had in those days were also learning, uh, learning this new thing. And so we, you know, right. so we, we were making very rapid turnaround uh, uh, experiments uh, using, you know, using multi-chip uh, uh, processing uh, uh, wafers and uh, and chips that, uh, that were available then they are available also now uh, and, and so that we could quickly learn you know learn rapidly how to solve various problems and uh, so all of that experience was really brought to to bear in doing this thing and, uh, and so it was a but it was like you know we all went to school for four or five years and then, uh, you know, so, so then, uh, and then eventually when we decided that's it, this is what we're going to do. That was about 93, uh, uh, then 92, 93. And then I think it was the end of 92. Mm -hmm. Then by 94, we had uh, our first touchpad that was uh, announced uh, in 94. And that was, that was the beginning of, and, and by 95, we were in production so uh, and making money. So th that was a very rapid adoption, partly because Apple came up with a, their own version right. of a similar thing. It created a market. Completely that created a market. And uh, so we, 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 we were behind them, in a sense, uh, with, uh, with a product that was actually better and that could serve the PC market instead of just Apple. And uh, in fact, Apple ended up buying our own our, our touchpads later on because they were cheaper and better than theirs. <laughs> oh, but, wow. but yeah, interesting. I, I didn't know that uh, that part. I mean, I remember from our conversation that uh, you told me that uh, one of the most difficult parts in reality of being an entrepreneur actually was to create a market, which is not something easy to do. And Apple is a master in uh, in doing that. It, it yeah. has been doing it, you know, for for decades now. So. Yeah. Uh, there was a there was a, an incredible story, and uh, then uh, one interesting aspect is um, uh, right now, uh, as you explained, the the kind of uh, architecture, at, at least for AI, seems to uh, have changed in the last years. It was, of course, the the turning point. At least for now, it has been 2017 with a new kind of architecture for AI, which is called a transformer which has changed a little bit the way those models, those large language models are, are, are actually uh, trained because uh, right now, as you said, uh, it was extremely uh, you know, hard to do it back then because it was hard from a computational standpoint, but it was also different, I guess, the kind of architecture that you would use to actually train the model. When instead right now, for instance, what they do, uh, like for instance at OpenAI, which is the company who has launched uh, uh, GPT and uh, ChatGPT, of course, is uh, the fact that they're able to pre-train 
a large language model on a vast amount of data, and they do it th through this uh, architecture, which is a transformer. The interesting part, of course, as uh, I explained uh, a little bit in, in my <laughs> previous uh, podcast episodes is the fact that uh, uh, right now you can get a much more generalized output from the from the large language model meaning that you know compared to before as you said uh, what you got from uh, AI model was very narrow right was uh, you know very specific feature and that was it right now the interesting thing is uh, you know you get uh, something which is uh, quite generalized like for instance GPT uh, or GPT3 uh, where you can uh, have it do a lot of things once you fine-tune it. So once you show it examples of what they need to do, you get you can have them do things from question answering to uh, you know um, coding uh, languages and many other things. So that's the interesting uh, part, I guess, right now. So yeah. the reason why I was explaining, and I think it's an important connection, is because it, right now by looking at those uh, large language models that was able, were able to do a lot of interesting stuff we are fooled into thinking that they are smart or like that there is like intelligence behind them so here i would like to draw the line with you you know a little bit between uh, what may be a key difference between you know human and uh, artificial uh, intelligence so your perspective on that yeah well uh, you know first of all let's not forget that uh... Uh, chat gpt was developed by human beings by human intelligence is not developed it did not develop by itself right so you know they tend to forget that and, and attribute to the machine what actually we put into the machine and so so you know it is true that that the machine seems to have a level of freedom so to speak uh in choosing when in reality even that is being carefully crafted by the fact that there are uh, rules behind, uh, for example, the construction of phrases and so on. But still, the comprehension, which is what is the fundamental aspect of consciousness, is not a property of the brain, is a property of the consciousness, which is not a property of the brain. Understanding, comprehending, is not an algorithmic aspect of reality. It is. That's why you need quantum physics to explain this property. And that's, we will get there later, presumably, when you ask me more pointed questions there. But, but for now, the fundamental difference between our intelligence, which is based on vision, on comprehension, of imagination, invention, on the ability to feel, to love, to embody, uh, to embody an experience, to experiencing, conscious experiencing, to asking questions, curiosity, you know, on and on and on, things the machines don't have, you know, are compared with something that we have figured out the rules directly or indirectly, the rules, you know, there are correlations that are that, that are found that are found simply by, by the computer, you know, going being much faster than we are at doing operations. And so, and, and so attributing intelligence to, to, you know, a piece of hardware, essentially, with some software that we crafted. So the soul of that machine is our soul. And we, you know, and, but to attribute that to the machine, that is the problem that I see today. And, and because, because it does not recognize the distinction between what real intelligence is we have defined intelligence essentially as being, you know, as computing much faster than we can. But what do you compute? We are telling the machine what to compute. We are telling the machine what we want. We want something that does jobs for us, which are that we cannot do because we are not fast enough. But just because we are not fast enough doesn't mean that we are less than intelligence. In other words, intelligence cannot be the speed with which you know, a machine can do calculation. There is something more than that. You know, yeah. it's figuring things out. And of course, is, you know, is the human direct, the human self-development, the human self-realization, which is at stake here. If we, you know, if we define intelligence the way that, that AI people define intelligence, you know, we're basically defined as machines. And machines that are, in fact, that have no reason to exist because, you know, because the machine that they make is better than us. 
I mean, th this is the bad idea and the bad, how to say, spin that is being given to artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is a great, unbelievable success in terms of what it can do if yeah. we use it wisely. But I'm afraid that it can be used much less wisely than we would like, and then it can it can bury us. In other words, you know, the the, the possibility of of, of of you know deceiving through AI is so is is multiplied you know a million times now to the point where you know where it is no longer possible to distinguish superficially you know yeah. what is made by a machine and what is made by a human being yeah and what is you know and, and so this creates can create enormous social problems that if we're not careful they can bury us and i'm i'm, I'm serious about this yeah yeah because that, that's because right. we already see cyber what cyber crime is 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 a scourge and you know now we're giving we're giving scammers we're giving tools that can be so you know so destructive that yeah. you know we you know we have to watch out you know i mean oh in in the past you know the 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 internet idealist thought that uh, no, everything has to be open. We cannot, you know, that everything, you know, people can do what they want. And they did a major problem, major disservice, because they didn't put security, they didn't design security into the system in such a way that, that you know, uh, a computer can, cannot basically take over what you do. And, and, and much of the crime, much of the cyber crime today was because of this idealistic view which in fact was, uh, you know, was was not not accurate about what's actually, you know, the, the state of human beings today. So we have to be extremely careful here, and I cannot be any more, you know, insisting about that. But most important, we have to begin to discover who we are. We are not machines. Yeah. And we're made to believe that we are machines. Science is describing the brain as a machine and consciousness as an epiphenomenon of a machine. Yeah. Epiphenomenon means that it is, it is a, you know, we think that we are conscious, but in reality, the brain makes the decision right. for us. Right. And then and we think that we are conscious, that we made it. Yeah, that's this what's is, a, this is a key point. Sorry, Federico, to, to stop you here, but uh, I want to make a connection because uh, you, you mentioned uh, science uh, with uh, causing this, but, uh, you know, the reason why I wanted to have uh, this uh, conversation with you uh, because it's uh, extremely important at this point to really draw the line between, you know, what the machine can do and what it's really happening in the background. And uh, it's not just a science, it's also, you know, the main, uh, you know, business, uh, let's say, cradle of uh, the Silicon Valley where you lived uh, for, for decades and you know, you know it uh, yes. better than me. Where, for instance, the interesting point here, as you say, the, there is no distinction uh, between like uh, really intelligence and consciousness, meaning that in a way they are uh, always connected, right? Because as you say, intelligence is a, is a form of consciousness because it's uh, grounded in our own experience. So it's something that comes within. And instead, the main uh, dominant, uh, uh, you know, belief right now, especially, you know, in the Silicon Valley, which is where most of those um, uh, large language models are coming out right now, is the exact opposite, which is, you know, as you said, intelligence. Uh, let me explain a little bit the other philosophy so that we can connect with yours and then we can draw the lines. So the other philosophy is more like uh, the emergent one, where they say uh, intelligence is a sort of emergent property of a complexity that we have in our brain and therefore is actually coming outside and from uh, the, the connections and the, uh, you know, relationships that we have in our neurons, in our brains. And, you know, when you see complexity arise from a very simple local use and you get this emergence, that's where intelligence comes from. And with this kind of belief, of course, we also can believe that the machines one day will be intelligent and also conscious and therefore why not uh, dominate the world and, you know, replace us? That's that's the, the story of the main, uh, let's say, mindset and philosophy that there is right now, which I think is worrying. So that's why I wanted to have this conversation with you. 
And now, you know, I want to leave you instead uh, a little bit, uh, you know, as uh, much space as you want to actually explain why instead you think uh, intelligence and uh, consciousness are actually uh, interconnected and how you arrived at this conclusion after studying the whole, uh, the whole uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, subject and also reminding the audience on the other side that your journey is so interesting because you came to those conclusions as a scientist, researcher, entrepreneur, so as a, you know, both like a person from theory and practice, and that's how you got to those uh, sort of conclusions. So I think it's extremely important because otherwise people, when they hear you talking about consciousness, they may think that we start touching sort of like a religious, you know, sort of uh, explanation when instead your explanation is very, very technical. It comes from a background where you do understand as very few people in the world, how computers work and how, you know, the fundamental parts of those computers work because you actually invented those parts. So, uh, all right, so let, the simplest possible way is to say the following. I feel love for my son. The love that I feel is not an algorithm. It's not, you know, it's a feeling, it's an experience, it's something that I feel deeply, and that's what makes me say to my son, I love you. A computer would say, I love you, and there is nothing behind. You see? And how can you, from the outside, tell the difference? So because you cannot tell the difference, then you say, a computer is conscious. It feels love. Conscious is about knowing because we feel. And that is the, and, and that is the most difficult thing to have people that have kind of left their feelings, left their emotions for only rationality to have them understand. They, 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 they just don't want to understand because they think that everything is rational, everything is logical, everything is algorithmic, and they don't understand that it cannot be that way. Interesting. They might understand later when they find that whatever they wanted to achieve did not did not they did not achieve because they don't feel good about it. You you got to, to that point, right? I mean, there was. For and you... I got myself to that point because I was like them. You know, in in you know, I I basically I, I was trained as a physicist, and I you know I I moved away from religions and the principles of religions, though you know. The, many of the principles are ethical principles, which I, you know, I never abandoned, but, but I certainly did not, you know, did not go for many of the dogmas of, of the religion in which I grew up. I grew up Catholic. And, uh, you know, so, so I, I didn't, you know, I didn't care for that, for, for all that construction that tried to, you know, try to give you a cosmology that I, I couldn't possibly believe. And so I, uh, embrace the you know the the wisdom of the world which is which is saying that if you get very rich you have health and you have a beautiful family and you have more, more money that you can spend uh, and you are famous you should be happy but i wasn't and i was deeply distressed why was that and it was because you know, I felt betrayed by, you know, by what the world has been telling me by, you know, of course, I, I what I did, I enjoy doing. So I wanted to do so that it's not that I would have done something different. But, but, you know, deep down, I had the belief that if I would achieve all of those things, I should be happy. And I wasn't. Now, who was telling me that? My consciousness. That was a state of consciousness that I had achieved. And I couldn't, you know, I could either push it away. And for a while, that's what I tried to do, you know, to push it away and, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of green and bear it, so to speak, so that you, you know, you would look like uh, you, you act, you, you become an actor, you act happy, you act, you know, accomplished, you know, when, when you know deep down that you're not. And so, you know, at one point I said, it's dishonest to do that. I have to face up to it. And so I face up to it. And it was 
through this facing up and through accepting that I was suffering, trying to figure out how to solve it, the problem and so on, that I had an extraordinary experience of consciousness that actually revealed the consciousness is much, much more than what I thought. I thought that consciousness was just feelings and stuff, but, you know, and that feelings and stuff was very different than signals and, you know, and, and electrical and biochemical signals in, you know, in, in, in hardware. But, but I never, I never went very far with that, you know, except saying, hey, you know, these are two qualities that cannot, they don't, they don't match, they don't come together. But then when I had these extraordinary experiences of consciousness where I experienced myself as the world that observes itself through my point of view. So I was a point of view of, of, the, of the world upon itself, on itself. And the feeling was love, love and joy and peace that I never felt the like which I never felt before. So how is that possible? That took me into a spin. Essentially, I spent 20 years after that to understand more about the nature of consciousness by studying, you know, whatever I could find. But most importantly, you know, doing the type of introspection and personal work that was required to understand you know i took i took all kinds of different meditations and so on and you know with the purpose of understanding this animal you know how is it you know what are the contours of this thing that is called consciousness and uh, so it was only after 20 years of personal work where i had many other extraordinary experiences of consciousness and by the way, I did not use drugs because some people use drugs and then they claim that they have an extraordinary experience. Yeah, they have an extraordinary experience, but but I personally don't know if I could trust something like that. In my cases, they were all spontaneous experiences that were in some way responding to what I wanted to know, more or less. Uh, and so, so in my case, I simply went along with whatever teacher is what I now would call my higher self, you know, a vaster, a vaster self that of which I am simply a smaller, you know, a smaller portion of, of, but this is, you know, this could be seen as speculation now. So, so, you know, so after 20 years, I realized that consciousness had to be a fundamental property of an entity that has consciousness, free will, and identity. Identity is the fact that I is like self-consciousness. I, I, an entity that knows that what it is experiencing is its own experience as identity, and therefore it can act with free will because it knows its own intention. It knows that its experience is its own and wants to develop its own experience, self-realize. So, so reality at the foundation has to be built of entities like that that know themselves want to know themselves at the capacity to know themselves the capacity to direct their own experience with with free will and through this interaction the interaction they can actually evolve and grow so that was sort of a you know sort of an overarching kind of sense that i had after 20 years and then i decided that uh you know, I had to go deeper, understand, connect the dots, because quantum physics was clearly something that had to do something with consciousness. It was very clear throughout, but, you know, but, you know, what is it, especially about quantum physics, that can explain consciousness and free will? And so, uh, you know, basically, uh, this inner aspect how can this inner aspect and the outer aspect join together in some form? How can spirituality and science come together in some form? That was what motivated me to start this foundation. That I started in 2011. I got out of everything that I was doing in 2009. Uh, all the boards, or you know, I was uh, you know, sold my last company that I was running, and on it goes. And uh, to in order to understand deeply, because I felt that. 
this was crucial because the world is going in a direction where unless we understand who we are, we are not going to be able to solve the problems that are in front of us, like the climate change, because climate change requires cooperation, not competition. Competition is what produces wars, produces disasters. And today we are run by a principle which is the survival of the fittest, because we think that life is about survival of the fittest. I couldn't buy that at all after all this, you know, all the work that I did on, on myself and what I understood about nature, our nature. And so, so uh, two years ago, we finally, you know, I, I hooked. I hooked with a with a you know one of the top physicists in the world in in, in the field of quantum information, uh, Pro Professor Giacomo Mauro Dariano. He's uh, he, he has shown that quantum physics derives entirely from quantum information, and quantum information uh, is, in other words, quantum information is senior to quantum physics, and quantum information as a property that is very unusual because it cannot be copied. Quantum information cannot be cloned. So quantum information is private. It has exactly the same property of our experience, which is private. My experience, I cannot, I'm the only one that can know my experience. So it's private. And my experience is very specific, very well, you know, is 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 definite. It's a is a definite, it's not made of pieces, is 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 a has a holistic nature, is a unity. So it is exactly like a pure state in quantum physics, in quantum information. Pure state is a definite state, but is non-clonable, mm. non-knowable. It, it cannot so, be counted or defined or like because it's a. It cannot be. It cannot be. If it cannot be copied, you cannot know. You know. It, right. it, 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 so, so the step, the the missing step was to say. Yeah, that's what because quantum a pure state a quantum information. Actually, represents an experience of systems which are the this entities that I was talking about earlier, a system that can actually know itself. So it is the representation of an experience. A quant, you know, so, so quantum information does not describe the world, the outer world, describe the inner world of experience, of the universe, which then out of which come the manifestations, which are what, you know, it, which is are, are, can be described with classical information, which is clonable. It, 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 classical information can be copied. You can copy the program. You can copy the data. A bit, you know, a, a bit is a copyable, where a quantum bit is not copyable. The quantum bit cannot be known. Quantum bit is, is simply is something that once you when you measure it, you can only get up or down in the direction in which they make the measurements. But you know, a quantum bit is an infinity of states. And all you get when you measure it is up or down, a bit, one bit. There is a theorem in quantum physics called the Olivo theorem. It tells you that the maximum information that you can get from a, from a quantum state is one bit per qubit, per quantum bit. And a quantum bit can be represented as a point on the surface of a sphere. So all of a sudden, you have a transformation from the, in, the interiority of the universe to the exteriority, which what we can measure, goes from an infinity of possibilities to a finite number of possibilities represented by one bit per quantum bit. Yep. So that, you know, in a nutshell, this is the story. Then, you know, presumably you have a bunch of questions. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, was, I was listening to it. Uh, absolutely critical point is uh, you say, the reason why we are right now limited compared to what the AI is starting to do from an outcome standpoint, so it starts to do more and more interesting things, 
it's just because it means that we didn't we didn't connect yet with our consciousness because we are still thinking as sort of machines just as a rational uh, human beings and this is a huge limitation because you're saying there is way more to it and uh, if we are able to to connect with with uh, our consciousness which as you can imagine i'm right now i'm, uh, I'm uh, 35 i do understand and i do start to feel uh, what you say but you know if i have to tell you i uh, did um, you know uh, experience what you experienced i you know my answer right now is uh, i'm not able to yet but the interesting part is um, i uh, i get uh, uh, your point which is uh, we need to start exploring behind our you know just uh, the, the physical part and look a little bit as much uh, as we can inside and the interesting part as well is you didn't uh, you know have this wake up call by you know let's say uh, doing uh, yoga you actually probably afterward you discovered those practices right initially it was right. something completely spontaneous it was something that really came about as a sort of uh, uh, from, from the inside without you really looking for it out of the blue yeah, say. exactly, exactly, out of the blue. So that's the most interesting part is uh, at some point, I guess, for how much disconnected we want to be with our consciousness, at some point, uh, she's going to get back to us and trying to reconnect with uh, with our... Uh, that's what we are, because yeah. we are that. You see, we're not the body. See, the, the, the fundamental point here is that there are three levels of reality that are not cl clearly recognized. One is the reality of consciousness and free will that can only be explained within quantum physics. They are quantum phenomena, purely quantum phenomena. They do not exist in space and time. They exist in a vaster reality that contains space and time as a like a screen where you project a portion of what exists in this vaster reality. Okay, so so that's the that's who we are. That's what survives the death of the body, because we 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 were the one that actually, in some way, created that body. Not 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 in the trivial way which you know you think about creation, but but you know but and I don't want to you know it would take too long to explain what I'm saying here. But so but we are the ones that created this body to have an experience in this world to know ourselves to develop ourselves, to know more about, about issues that, that, that we want to know about ourselves and so on. So the second level is a living organism. A living organism is not a classical system. It's not a computer. It's actually a quantum and classical system. It has the, you know, it has the coherence of quantumness and the incoherence of classical structures. In terms of you know the the quantum coherence, right, and and therefore this body can be a uh, you know it, it can be something that bridges the quantumness of our consciousness and free will with the classical world, which is the world of microscopic objects, which is the world of computers, uh, the world of bits. Okay, so. If we don't see it this way, we only see, you know, see classical because, you know, we all live in the classical world and, you know, and the classical world is deterministic and, and blah, blah, blah. Okay. If we only see that and then we see quantumness as something that happens only with, you know, in the very small, but then by the time we get to macroscopic objects, uh, you know, there is no more quantumness. Then we are wrong, completely wrong, and that's the one of the problems today. If even physicists that you know have, they are so committed to the materialistic and reductionistic view of the world that it comes from classical physics, that you know the, the commitment is so strong that they cannot see that you know that that's only a part of reality. You know, in other words, the determinism comes from the indeterminism of quantum physics. You couldn't have it otherwise otherwise. It's, it's, you know the, the, the less the, the, the more cannot come from the less. It's the less that can come from the more. So for example, uh, you know consciousness cannot come from matter that doesn't have any consciousness. Right. And I guess I guess a little bit of uh, the the 
problem there for science is also the fact that uh, uh, in science, I guess, even in a, in a, a quantum physics uh, perspective, you still want to be able to measure things, right? You still want to yeah. have a, a sort of a scientific framework to actually test things up and uh, yeah. sort of uh, have uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, you know, um, understanding of the world through, through measurement. So I guess this is also why it's very hard to move away from, uh, from that other paradigm. W what's your suggestion there? Um, for like as an experimental framework to actually uh, look at consciousness uh, for for science well, consciousness because it is a purely private experience therefore subjective can only be known by exploring oneself it cannot be known by outer experiments and you know and, and of course already quantum physics says that quantum states are private, cannot be known. You can only know a bit per qubit. Okay, So already quantum physics is saying, hey, guys, classical physics is an incredible reduction of something vaster. Mm -hmm. And so to explore that vastness, we need to start exploring our interiority. Not, you know, I'm not saying not to stop doing measurements in the outer world. I'm simply saying that we are completely neglecting who we are, and who we are is we are quantum systems of a complexity or, or a, of a construction we have no idea now. It's just that, you know, we are just beginning to, oh, wow, to waking up and say, oh, you know, we're not what we thought. We are not machines. The machines is only, you know, in fact, the machine, the machines that we imagine are completely trivial compared to even our body, which is a machine. But it's a quantum classical machine. Right. And our consciousness is even more because our body comes from a quantum system that has invented it, has created it to have an experience, like we have created computers to have an experience. See, we we we, we start with the with the wrong idea and we, and we want to you know to get more from less. That's not yeah. the way it works. And uh, to to close this up, uh I mean, you already gave uh, you know a huge amount of suggestions, but uh, to deal with uh, this current AI paradigm, which uh, tells us uh, that in the future, you know, machines will become much smarter as a consequence, you know, computing power, better architecture for AI, and therefore those uh, AI models, who knows, one day they will be able to train themselves and therefore improve without uh, sort of uh, uh, not even uh, output from, from the human. In a scenario like that, I mean, how do we deal with the limitations of AI and therefore how do we make sense as, a, as humans to actually make sure that we don't get lost? Meaning what can we do here uh, to prevent a scenario where, you know, we give uh, control to, to the AI and then we go in the, in the, rather, in the wrong direction? Well, um, the only way is to, uh, to accept the view that I'm proposing, and I'm the only one clearly proposing this, and then do the work. I mean, if you, if you see, if you don't believe that there is anything inside, in fact, you know, inside there are only monsters that you don't want to see, and you push them away, you know, and on, you live only on your rational head, not even the creative head, but the rational head, then there is no hope. I, I, I cannot what to say, you know, what, what can you do? I mean, then we are in the, in the throngs of a, of a revolution that can cause hardship for humanity because, because it will not end well. So, uh, the, you know, so only the people that, that are willing to look inside themselves and develop and understand and develop their interiority, and that takes a lot of work. I mean, I, I've been, I'm still at it 35 years later. You know, uh, you know that never ends, but, but I am much more happy now. In fact, I, I, I would say that I'm, I'm very content now because I do... You know, I do what I think is the right thing to do, and I do it putting all of myself into it, 
and I know that this is what I have to do, and I enjoy what I'm doing, and I don't have any desire to do anything else. I'm not looking for, you know, for success or, you know, I'm just being myself. It's guided, it's guided by love. I mean, it's uh, guided by, by, guided your... by my own, by my own sense of who I am and what I want. But, but in the, in, but, but to do good, you know, to go the good of everybody, you know, and, and so, so that's, that's where I'm at right now. But, you know, unless a person decides that there is something there, they're not going to look there. And the problem today is that most people, most scientists don't think that there is anything there. In fact, there is the horror of religion. I mean, I, I'm not religious at all. I'm saying that this is science. Right. This is this is actually recognizing that we have an interiority that is foundational, more foundational than the what we call, you know, the real world out there. Right. Which would also explain a lot of uh, this would also explain a lot of phenomena that right now we are not able to explain, especially in the domain of what we call again emergence. Uh, you know, of because course. there are different kinds of emergency. You can call it, you know, strong or weak. And right now, for instance, in the eye, at least we try, at least scientists try to look at weak emergence and they try to explain it with the fundamental rules. When in reality, again, there, there are different kinds of emergence. But here, always the question is, uh, where those well, properties? First of all, the emergence that AI are talking is talking about, right? Is we're putting it in. We are. We we are the ones, you know. Uh, coaching right. and, and and supervising and you know and changing and moving and dying. So what what you know it emerges that they, they, they we're told that that emerged by itself. Come on, I mean this is dishonest to say that. Completely right. dishonest to say that. Right. Because we have to this, stop this nonsense. We have to stop this nonsense. Right. Because it's a, it's an optimization process done by the human. So the whole absolutely right. absolutely it, it's you know it. We do not know how the first cell emerged the way that, you know, with nobody coaching it. In fact, I don't believe that it can. Right. You cannot, by random processes, create an, a structure like a, a living cell. You cannot. I mean, this idea that randomness is, you know, and, and selection has done it, completely nonsense, complete nonsense. Right. You, you're saying there is a point in which, uh, actually after which, and you say after we go, we move out from the physical realm, there is no more uh, evolution, there is no more theory of evolution, there is something else. That's that's what you, what you say, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. There, there is, you know, there is variation in selection. You see, I believe in variation and selection, but not random variation in selection. Right. You see? Right. The process of creation occurs by variations and selections, but supervised by a conscious knowing entity that already knows what he wants. I want to make something that computes. I don't know how to do it yet, but I have this idea, this intention. And so little by little, we have computers. They, they, right. they come out through a process of variations and selection, but the what drives it is a over a view of the totality of the totality of what you want that drives the whole process and only conscious entities can have that view of the totality because that is not algorithmic right the algorithm is what you create those are the the how to say is the the symbolic aspect of reality which is algorithmic mm. but the the feeling the the real cognitive, the real cognition is not algorithmic. Right, interesting. It is, it is the foundational property of consciousness that can know itself. It knows itself by self-reflection. There is the stuff for which everything is made has this property of self-reflecting and knowing itself. And it is the foundational property. It cannot be explained in any simpler ways than saying that's what everything is made of. Right. Interesting. So I would say instead of calling it emergency, at least in artificial intelligence, we could call it like sort of human optimization. That's an interesting take. 
And uh, uh, the other one, which probably you already answered. Uh, was... Yeah, yeah, but, but you start starting yeah. is, is, is optimization by, by starting by something that you want, that you a vision right. that you have, that you want to do. Yeah. So there is an intention, there is an intentionality in a direction in which the optimization occurs, right. which is which can only come from consciousness. It cannot come from a, from a machine. Yeah. And you already answered to the other last question that I wanted to ask, which is for you, like uh, creativity is directed by consciousness. And if that is the case, then it means that we cannot have, we, we can have again machines that can do incredible things, also like generating images, videos, and stuff. But this we cannot call it uh, consciousness or like creativity, like creativity is something else. Yeah, it's basically, it's basically, you know, it's basically. That's algorithmic behavior, right? Algorithmic behavior, but but trained by conscious beings that know what they want, and so there, there is a, there is a there is a collusion here. There is a convergence of human consciousness with a machine, because a program is really, you know, it's not doesn't make itself right. I mean, it's you know, we are the ones that decides what we want. And, and by the way, we want machines that yeah. don't have free will because we want them to, to do what we want. Useful, and yeah. Maybe not what you want, but what right. I, the structure of the machine, want that machine to do. So I always have a little door in the back of the machine that, I, that allows me to, con to control the machine and make it do what I want. Right. Okay? Otherwise, you know, I mean, nobody would be foolish enough to close that door and let the machine, you know, go by itself. And by the way, I, I don't, I don't think that the machines in those, in those, in this case, if they were not connected to a human, to human beings, would mm -hmm. end up being able to do anything good right. on, on this. Uh, you know, I, this idea that they take over the internet and then they start killing. I mean, th 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 that's kind of fantasy. I mean, it's, it's silly. Uh, you know, they, they basically, you know, they, they they will not be able to to do to do much. Right. And besides, have you ever seen a computer give birth to another computer like itself within itself, like we do, like cells do? Have you ever seen? You know, our body is built of cells, where fifty trillions, you and I, more or less. Each cell contains the genome of the entire organism. Right. Yeah. So each cell is a part whole. I call it a part whole because it has the potential knowledge of the whole inside each part. Inside the part. Yeah. Which is in so, this so, is not it cannot be like this distinguished between like the, the cell itself and the organism because those are interconnected, which is which is what you don't get in a computer, like in a also That's a right. in a computer. It, it, you know, the parts are transistors. In tra transistor is a switch. It doesn't know anything about the system, what the yeah. system does, or what the system can do, or whatever. So even as a, one cell of my body can later decide to to develop or to express a portion of the knowledge of the whole that he has. And that's that's called epigenetics, for example. Okay, so expresses something that was that is beyond what he had when he was born. Mm -hmm. So even the body, which is a machine, is built an image and uh, likeness of the totality of what exists. Right. As totality is, you know, we are those beings. We quantum beings are those beings within us is the totality, the total capacity of one, totality of what exists. Right. And I would say this is uh, the core difference between human and uh, artificial, uh, I guess. This is yeah. really the, the core. Artificial intelligence is, is simply, you know, is a, you know, is simply a, a wonderful construction if used properly, awful construction if used to, to, you know, to enslave others, which is most likely what will, be, will happen in our future. That's a problem, a, a problem that we cannot accept. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, uh, again, extremely glad that we had this conversation. And uh, I'm, I, 
I have two uh, souls in myself. One is the business one who uh, understands and appreciates the incredible things that we can do with these new AI tools. And the other one is more like the really the more important, which is the human who also wants to look at all the limitations to make sure that we know that those tools, we can use them for productivity and make sure that we can enhance ourselves. For instance, in my case, I'm pretty excited by the fact that I can run way more things as a business person and, you know, make a, uh, you know, uh, more uh, uh, business that create more impact with uh, with uh, few people, and we can reach more people across the world, which is interesting. But that's it. That's pretty much what it needs to be, and uh, the lines that we need to draw in order to make it successful. Because otherwise, the risk is, you know, we we go in the in the wrong direction. And if there is any, you know, last message that you want to, uh, you know, uh, say, feel free, and uh, we can close this up. Yeah, Gennaro, I mean, would you give a loaded gun to a child? Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. So don't give tools that can be used to deceive. Yeah. Great. Thank you. And honestly, I wouldn't even give a loaded gun to another human, honestly. So <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for, for your yeah. time, Federico. It was a pleasure. Right. This is a All critical right. moment to have this conversation and uh, I'm very happy we had it. So thank you. All right. Thank you, General. Bye.